Welcome to another edition of Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM, WFUV, and WFUV.org on this Sunday morning. Emmanuel Barbari with you. Just came off another impeachment trial in this country, and President Trump made history, only president to be impeached twice, but also the only president to be acquitted twice in the United States Senate. And to many objective observers, the one aspect of the entire process that was apparent, we knew the outcome essentially before the proceedings, before the evidence came forth. And many would argue that had to do with the constitutionality argument. Many would argue that had to do with the hyper-partisan nature of the country we live in right now. You go into an impeachment trial, which is a sacred aspect of the constitution, and we essentially knew the outcome from the outset. Happy to have John Davenport back on the show today. Fordham philosophy professor penning several op-eds about the pressing political issues that in some ways are plaguing the country, in some ways present massive opportunity for growth and for prosperity. He's been with me a couple episodes running now, and he has some thoughts on potential impeachment reforms and a general reaction to what transpired and how that underscores the need for growth past this hyperpartisanship in the country. Happy to have John Davenport back on Fordham Conversations. How closely did it mirror other impeachment processes you've seen throughout history? Well, it's, uh, it's really different, I think, than the other three that people think of. Uh, in the case of Nixon, he resigned before being impeached, but probably would have been impeached if he chose not to do that and tried to hang on. The, the record in the Senate uh, was more strongly against Trump than in the case of the Clinton impeachment uh, over you know, a sexual affair with an intern, which seems, I have to say, comparatively minor next to what happened on, on uh, January 6th and everything that led up to it. Uh, so I, I think Trump's case was significantly more serious, maybe not quite on the level of Andrew Johnson back in the uh, period right after the Civil War, uh, who was almost convicted by the Senate, but for one vote. That's the closest that's ever come in our history. Uh, so one might say, well, the impeachment process is not really working very well, given that you know partisan senators are serving as the jurors. Uh, it seems like you know, the nature of the Senate has changed so much since it, the Constitutional Convention, uh, where it was imagined to be a sort of a conclave of wise men, you know, elder statesmen uh, representing mostly state governments. Now it's, uh, you know, it's a popularly elected branch of our legislature. So maybe we should change how we do impeachment as a whole uh, as a difficult constitutional reform, but probably necessary. You mentioned changing how we do it as a whole and maybe enacting reforms, enacting an amendment. What would that look like in your mind moving forward? Well, there are different ideas, but I think the probably the most promising one is to have some kind of a special court uh, that would do the actual trial uh, and conviction, whether that's the Supreme Court or perhaps some other court constituted from, say, retired judges, maybe elder statesmen, a stateswoman uh, from different states around the country, some other body like this that is, uh, you know, an impartial panel removed from the current political pressures of the day because they don't have to face reelection. Uh, those are it's along those lines that constitutional scholars have suggested 
reforming the impeachment process. So that it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't go to the Senate. Perhaps the articles of impeachment should still be voted by the House, uh, but then an actual trial would be conducted more like an actual criminal trial, although with a different burden of proof. Uh, the, the the conviction beyond all reasonable doubt really is uh, a standard that is used when we're looking at you know prison time and uh, as opposed to just kicking someone out of office. So yeah, the standard of, of proof would probably be preponderance of the evidence, uh, which I think was clearly met uh, in the last impeachment. We also know, though need to clarify things in the in the law itself, the language in the Constitution. Um, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors is a very old phrase coming from British common law that doesn't mean very much today. We probably need to spell out in more detail, um, you know, some sort of a significant felony committed by the president, um, you know, gross dereliction of duty going on for a long time, maybe uh, that doesn't rise to, you know, wouldn't uh, produce um, conviction in a, in a criminal trial, uh, but is sufficient to justify uh, kicking someone out of the White House. Those are the sorts of things that need to be spelled out in an amendment. What sort of grounds and a little bit more detail, you know, of what uh, are the bases for impeaching the president or for that matter, the vice president, which uh, has happened, you know, before in American history, um, you know, Spear Agnew was also threatened with impeachment and had to resign. Uh, and other officials can be impeached. Judges. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question whether members of Congress can be impeached, but a big question was whether it was constitutional that was voted on beforehand and then it really seemed to be a dominating feature of a lot of the rhetoric during the trial as well in your view should that have been separate once it was deemed constitutional by a vote it was judged on the merits because that kind of chatter seemed to linger into the proceedings right yeah it's a real shame that that happened right exactly once the senate voted as a whole to say that this was constitutional, the jurors should have proceeded uh, on that basis, uh, as would jurors in a criminal trial when they're instructed by the judge. This is the basis on which you decide this case before you, given the evidence that's been laid out and so on. And of course, senators, uh, m many re Republican senators did not do that. Um, and that, again, is, you know, a reflection of the, the, the nature of, uh, of these jurors that, you know, they're uh, elected officials who are facing partisan pressures and uh, all kinds of uh, concerns from their own electorate. But really, the argument that uh, one cannot uh, impeach an official who's out of office is completely specious. It's happened before in our history. Uh, federal courts have, have not said that that's unconstitutional. And uh, as was pointed out during the recent impeachment process, if that were in fact the standard, it would mean that a president late in his or her term uh, could do all kinds of crazy things, uh, you know, under the immunity of office uh, and face no uh, repercussions for that, not be, for example, banned from running for public office again in the United States, uh, which would have been the result of conviction in this kind of trial. Moreover, as a number of people have pointed out, um, the Senate, when still uh, under the majority control of Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, decided not to proceed with impeachment trial in the Senate uh, in January when Trump was still in office. So it's kind of crazy to say, well, we don't want to do this in January. And then in February and turn around and say, well, this is unconstitutional because we didn't do it in January. I mean, that just looks completely hypocritical. 
but the more important point for constitutional reform going forward is that the amendment uh, changing the impeachment process should specify that people can be impeached even though they're no longer currently holding office. And in that case, the impeachment would mean uh, just what it says in the current constitution, that they can't uh, run again for office in the United States. Uh, it's it's uh, explicit and was part of the intention of our founders that that not in itself lead to a criminal conviction. Although, of course, when someone is out of office and no longer protected by, say, the special privileges of the presidency, they can be tried uh, for ordinary crimes as well. John Davenport, our guest here on Fordham Conversations, you mentioned a lot of what the House managers cited, that, that last stretch of a presidency, where if you allow someone not to be impeached after the presidency, it opens the door for that free reign type of behavior. How much has the office been endangered, or at least the conduct of the office been endangered by what transpired here? Oh, I think grossly endangered. I mean, it really sends a message that uh, future presidents could, you know, could could really act with impunity during the lame duck period, given that there probably wouldn't be enough time to conduct, uh, you know, the full trial. And especially if you wanted to call witnesses or have longer series of hearings in the House leading up to voting on articles of impeachment. I mean, as we saw uh, in the first impeachment of Donald Trump, I mean, that took several weeks the end of uh, the year and then leading into the next January. So, I mean, that full process, right. I mean, it could take, you know, all the way from the previous December through January, which would mean that, uh, yeah, a sitting president could, could do all kinds of, of crazy things in the last two months in office uh, and not, uh, you know, suffer the consequences of impeachment for them. Uh, I think it sets a terrible precedent. Um, and, uh, you know, I very much hope future presidents wouldn't take advantage of that. Uh, but until there's some kind of an amendment that clarifies this, yeah, a precedent has been set, even though the Senate voted that this was constitutional. Uh, one major party tried to take um, uh, you know, refuge behind this argument as a, as a shield. Uh, and let me just, if I may, also add one thing on the argument made by uh, the attorneys representing Donald Trump uh, during the Senate trial. And that was their claim that he was simply exercising freedom of speech. That, I think, was an even more ridiculous constitutional argument, I just have to say, uh, because no one is protected in their speech if they incite insurrection or they incite violence of any kind, right, let alone against the center of the government of the United States. I mean, that's really, uh, you know, that there's no chance that the Supreme Court or any other federal court would find that kind of thing, protected speech. Now, if he were just saying, I don't agree with the results of the election, uh, you know, I think it, it shouldn't be certified, uh, all those sorts of arguments may be specious, the claims of, uh, you know, voter, widespread voter fraud going into the millions, that's all protected speech for sure. Uh, but someone acting in an official capacity, uh, especially in such a high office, uh, inciting people to violence, um, you know, they could argue that's not what he said, that was only implied. Uh, but they didn't make that argument. They tried to say basically that you could you know, say anything of that kind, even if he was uh, suggesting the overthrow of the Capitol building, uh, that that would be protected speech, which is just absurd on its face. That, that was a really embarrassing argument. Now the question becomes, was 
insurrection incited because the Capitol was stormed, it was attempted, and a speech was directly connected to it. But at that point, it becomes, was that speech that was implied to send those violent supporters into the Capitol inciting insurrection? What does that come down to in your mind? Well, it's really a judgment call. Uh, I mean, there was that one moment where he did say, you know, we're going to peacefully go down there. Uh, but there were a number of other suggestions and tweets suggesting that, you know, he was actually suggesting that they try to stop the process. Uh, and so it's more of an implied, you know, a case where it's an implied incitement. That's exactly the kind of thing that a, that a jury in an actual criminal trial uh, would have to weigh. Uh, did, did the person know uh, how their uh, speech would be interpreted, uh, what people would read into it, right? Uh, how it would be received. And it's pretty, I think there's a lot of evidence that, that Trump knew exactly uh, how it would be received. Uh, he may not have expected that they could actually get into the Capitol building. Who knows? I mean, he might have been surprised by that. But then there's also uh, the evidence that he didn't try to reach out immediately and say, oh, no, that's not what I meant. Please stop. Go go back. You know, uh, do not try to break into the Capitol building and uh, threaten the lives of, of members of Congress. Uh, and who knows, uh, you know, what would have happened if different people within the mob that got into the Capitol building actually did manage to confront or get hold of different members of Congress. Uh, I want to believe in my heart that they wouldn't have done them any violence, but it does seem possible that at least in some cases they might have tried that. Uh, so, so that really, you know, goes beyond just a kind of a general attack uh, on the government uh, and at the very heart of our democracy you know, to these more particular threats to individual members of Congress, especially those, you know, like, say, AOC or, you know, who, who uh, stand out or Mitt Romney on the Republican side, you know, who might have been recognized and called a traitor by people you know, invading the Capitol. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was incitement to violence. John Davenport, our guest on Fordham Conversations, 90.7 FM, WFUV.org, talking all things impeachment process. That's something I really wanted to get your take on because we talk about January 6th, we talk about it as plain facts as what happened and we kind of just say, okay, that happened and then we take it at face value. But in an alternate set of events, you mentioned congressmen and women getting taken hold of, the vice president getting potentially kidnapped or something of that exactly. nature. What do yeah. you think would have been different about this impeachment process or the preceding events of electoral certification had someone like Vice President Pence been harmed? I think the, yeah, in that case, if someone had actually been killed or harmed or say that the vice president was uh, taken hostage for some period of time, it seems more likely to me that more Republicans would have voted for impeachment. Even then, uh, if no one was actually killed, uh, I wonder whether you would have gotten 17 Republicans. But yes, I think you're exactly right. The conversation would be very different. Um, uh, I, I'm still, you know, I wouldn't wish a harm on anyone. I'm glad that didn't happen, uh, even though it might have uh, led to, you know, a more kind of fundamental public discussion and a more serious moment of reckoning in Congress. Um, still not worth the price of, uh, of someone being in that kind of danger, uh, including Mike Pence. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's it's easier to sweep it under the rug now uh, because, thank God, that didn't happen. Uh, but it, it's, 
it's a, just a reflection of the extreme partisan nature uh, of American politics. It's always been increasing, as we've discussed in, in a couple prior interviews. Uh, and so it's really it's really a deep symptom of that. Uh, I think Democrats are now in a position, unfortunately, where they really do have to focus on things like the COVID relief bill, maybe an infrastructure bill, other things coming up this year. Uh, and that's apparently what the Biden administration is trying to do. Uh, but the feeling really was, and I'm sure that's why they went forward with impeachment, knowing they would probably you know, not win the Senate vote, because you can't just allow this to go uh, completely with impunity without uh, some kind of consequences. Uh, and I do think that uh, the kind of waffling of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and, and others on the Republican side has, at least for a while, put a bit of dent in the Republican poll numbers. Uh, you know, that may com rebound completely, you know, within the next couple of years before the uh, midterm elections. Uh, but at the moment, it's, it's serious for them. They, they, there's a kind of a, a crisis going on in the Republican Party. Um, so it's, it's led at least to that much consequence. You mentioned we've spoken about the hyper-partisan nature of the country and of the Congress as a whole. How remarkable, given what we know, is it that seven Republicans even voted to convict in a time as polarized as this? It is remarkable. Uh, and I applaud them uh, for doing their public duty and, and voting their conscience. Uh, it seems like it maybe at least one vote was changed during the actual discussion in the Senate uh, and the presentation of evidence and argument. And so um, yeah, that was, uh, that was also rare. It's a rare thing to see these days. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think in many cases they were people who are, you know, not running for re-election, uh, which just goes again to, to show how, how different it might be if you had a completely impartial uh, jury that wasn't mostly, you know, people expecting to run for re-election in the Senate. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, they, they definitely made a strong public statement. Uh, and to that extent, the outcome doesn't feel quite as simply partisan as it did, say, in the case of Bill Clinton, who I have to say also showed at least some chagrin, some embarrassment, um, although not sort of technically admitting fault. Uh, so the circumstances were very different back then. Uh, but yeah, it's really, it is really a sign of the times. I remember those discussions during Bill Clinton's impeachment uh, when, you know, people who were still on Fox News uh, at much younger age uh, were railing and how awful, you know, the moral fiber of the United States being dragged into the gutter by this president. And I mean, it was a serious thing, but I mean, it's not even 1% as serious as what happened on January 6th. When you look ahead at what impeachment is and what it will be moving forward, you referenced Nixon before he was a person who resigned and then was offered a pardon. What factor does the pardon play in what occurs with impeachment moving forward? Well, the pardon in Nixon's case was uh, really against it to try to, you know, create a kind of a, a blanket, a, a wall of protection against um, criminal indictment, uh, which I think otherwise would have followed in Nixon's case. As it's pretty clear, he encouraged uh, people to break into the Watergate Hotel and the office of uh, uh, the opposing party. Uh, so, you know, basically baking, breaking into their campaign headquarters, as was kind of done by Russia uh, in the 2016 election instead. Uh, 
but um, that is really one of the major issues. Should the president be able to pardon someone uh, for crimes for which they've not yet been indicted? Uh, probably the pardon power should just be amended to completely remove that ability to create these sort of you know prophylactic or uh, proactive pardons uh, that uh, you know operate. Um, I could basically say you, no one can be tried for anything that they've done uh, up to the day that I issue this pardon. Um, and uh, and so I think in in the case of President Ford pardoning Nixon. He arguably was doing that with the hope that it would help the country move on and, you know, not drag out the divisiveness, you know, the Watergate publicity had been consuming the nation for months. And there was at that time, you know, more uh, of a will on both parties to try to get things done and work together. And, and so things were not quite as divided as they are in our time. So he may have you know, had good intentions in doing that. Uh, but I think um, uh, it, you know, definitely cost him re-election, and it was a device. It ended up being more divisive than he expected. It's probably a good idea simply to re to say that um, people can only be pardoned or have uh, sentences commuted uh, for crimes that they've already been indicted or convicted for, um, and so you know, not going forward. Uh, when Trump was issuing a whole bunch bunch of pardons in the last few days of, of his administration. There are even suggestions that there might be secret pardons uh, that were issued, say, to various family members that we might only discover at the time um, that they were actually indicted for something. Uh, that seems kind of unlikely to me, but it's not in, under the law as it now stands. It's not completely impossible that that could happen. It seems moving forward that the, again, hyperpartisan nature means anything you dig up, anything you present as fact is almost taken as such. And then you can run with a lot of things that wouldn't necessarily be agreed upon in previous times. So the notion of, of impeaching uh, President Biden or Vice President Harris has been tossed around and actually floated mainstream in the recent days. How partisan can the impeachment process become to the extent that it's just weaponized and, and no longer becomes a an actual constitutional proceeding that it was intended to be. Right. I mean, that is, uh, you know, precisely why the founders required these high thresholds, right, you know, a uh, two-thirds of the Senate to convict. And uh, so one might argue that maybe that should require, you know, a little bit more uh, stronger supermajority in the House uh, in order to even indict. Uh, that is another possibility that could be included in, in, a, in an amendment. But, uh, I mean, in fairness, even when Trump first came into office, there were a couple people, at least, you know, saying the next day, let's impeach him, you know. I mean, this, this always seems to happen in, in, in recent times. The too, too many uh, people within our country don't think of the impeachment in, with quite the gravity and the seriousness that it demands. Throwing it around just as a political weapon is not, not what, was, uh, what was intended, right? That's not how... Uh, the impeachment clause is, is meant to function in our system of government. Uh, it's meant to be there for accountability to show that no one's above the law. The president is not a king or queen. Uh, and, and this is how our Constitution you know, makes that explicit. Uh, it's not meant to be something that you just you know, use against a, uh, an, a, an, a, a, any official, president, vice president, whoever, uh, from the opposite party, just because you don't like them or you don't like their policies. 
So yeah, we need to change also kind of, you know, citizen education on this. We need a lot more civics education in our high school, uh, probably a national standard so that everyone understands these essential parts of our government. Uh, I think that would mitigate some of what we're seeing these days. But maybe we also need to think about the old fair and balanced standard that um, the FCC used to have and maybe even extending that to cable news uh, so that there's some kind of uh, re responsibility on the part of these mass media organizations that especially if they reach many millions of people on television uh, for you know checking what they're saying uh, and uh, of course you're going to have opinion pieces some of which will be wild uh, but without um, you know these kind of series of gross lies uh, you know that uh, are used uh, to justify extreme measures like impeachment. John appreciate the insight great discussion and look forward to talking about more pressing issues with you moving forward. Thank you so much. Big thanks to John Davenport for joining the show. Once again, a lot of great thoughts about ways the process could be reformed, ways impeachment could be restored to the level of care it needs to be. And he'll continue to provide insight for us on the wide ranging issues the country faces politically and beyond. If you missed any of today's interview, you can go to wfub.org to catch the full conversation. For this week's edition of Fordham Conversations and John Davenport, Emmanuel Barbari with you. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>